Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, I noticed on the internet that um, a very significant pastor in the United States, a guy called Kent Dobson, who was the successor of Rob Bell um, at Mars Hill Bible Church, uh, Rob Bell resigned, and uh, a couple of years later, Kent Dobson resigned uh, of Mars Hill Bible Church. That is, uh, or it was, one of the most influential churches in America of kind of the first decade of the 20th, 21st century. And uh, in his announcement, Dobson, Kent Dobson, he shared with the church why he was leaving. Don't worry, I'm not making an announcement tonight. Um, but um, uh, he shared why he was leaving. And, um, and he shared how when he started as a minister, he was animated by Paul's example in Acts 17. If you don't know Acts 17, Paul goes to Athens. No one knows about Jesus. And he starts talking about Jesus and he starts quoting the Athenian poets. And what he does, he never changes the message of the gospel, but he repackages it in such a way, he translates it in such a way that he uses the thought forms of the city that he's come to to explain Jesus to. And Dobson explains he was really driven by that. He was excited by that kind of thing. And he wanted to do the same thing, the same gospel, but delivered in a more hip way, is what he said. Uh, specifically, he wanted to have a cool church with cooler shoes than the traditional church down the road. And um, I think we can relate to this, right? We are, we're in a cool part of town. Your pastors are cool, right? No, I'm looking at Amelia. She's laughing at me. Is that like, no, we're not cool? Okay, apparently I'm not. But um, I do see, I'm looking at Nate. He is pretty cool, but um, sorry, Nate. Uh, <laughs> but um, I think this, we can, we can kind of relate to this, that we do want a Christianity that's relevant, that speaks to people in our city, that isn't so jargony and religious-y that our world can't understand it. However, over time, Dobson said that he not only began to question the packaging of Christianity, but also its message. And this is what he says. He says, I've always been and still am drawn to the very edges of religion and faith in God. I've said a few times that I don't even know, I don't even know if we know what we mean by God anymore. That's the edges of faith. That's the thing that pulls me. I'm not really drawn to the center, he says. I'm not drawn to the orthodox or the mainstream or the status quo. I'm always wandering out to the edge and beyond. And to his church, he paints himself as a modern-day Magellan, Magellan, ready to explore the great spiritual unknown, a romantic vagabond, motivated by nothing but curiosity and bravery. He's boldly setting his sails toward the choppy waters which stand between what is and what could be. Sounds so adventurous, so bold, so courageous. Now, Dobson says he's been on a journey, that he grew up in one place and he's moving, he's, he's out there, he's journeying to another place. But here's what I want you to realize. In reality, he's exactly where he's always been. His goal has always to be the cool pastor with the cool shoes. It's not that he's journeying away from the center of faith. No, he's always stood right in the middle of the zeitgeist of society. He's always wanted to be cool. And in America, what used to be cool was to be a cool hip pastor, 
Today, that is the absolute opposite of cool. And as a result, he's not moving anywhere. He's staying right in the middle of what culture deems acceptable. He's not moving forward into the unknown. He's sitting perfectly still in his safe, cozy space where the rest of the society finds Jesus irrelevant. And as a pastor, I find it very hard to respect a guy like this. Because when you become a pastor, you take an oath that you would be a shepherd of souls and that you would stand before the souls of your people and that you would feed them the truth so that the wolves wouldn't come in and, and, and ravish the flock. Here is a man who claimed to be a pastor and is too cowardly to stand up and feed his people the truth because the rest of society now finds the truth of Christianity uncool, unacceptable, and intolerant. And I, what I want to say to you today is actually the real adventurers, the real adventurers are those who set sail for the risky land of staying true to the Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing harder in our city today than to stay true to the Lord Jesus Christ. Christianity is mocked in all our media. The media is becoming increasingly hostile to the Christian faith. I, I, I talk to some of you, and in your workplaces, you do find it hard even to tell people you're, you're a Christian for what they may, be, may think. It can be very easy uh, to actually hide the fact that you're a Christian. There is temptation around every corner to compromise, to sell out, and stop being light and salt in a dark world. In our desire to be relevant, often we edit the gospel so that it doesn't actually challenge anyone. Sin, we, uh, we, we, we change sin and we call it dysfunctional behavior. Salvation becomes finding self-esteem and wholeness. Jesus becomes an example of someone who loved others and we should follow his example. And sermons become merely advice on how not to be lonely, how to have a happy marriage, raise nice kids, and not how to get right with God. That's really what sermons are meant to be about. What the gospel is, is that sin means that you and I are cut off from God. We've wandered away from Him and rejected Him. Salvation means that Jesus had to pay your debt to reconcile you for God. Not that He just had to pay, but actually He loved to pay that. And that's why we call it Good Friday, because His love was immense. Jesus, therefore, is not just our example. He's the only way men and women can be saved. And the church, therefore, is a gathering of saved people who come together to stir each other up, to remind each other that it doesn't matter what you've done, who you are, Jesus will offer you even forgiveness if you come to him for mercy. And therefore, Christianity thrives. It thrives in our world, not when we try and offer the world what they already have, there's nothing less relevant than Christians who are just offering the world what they already have. No, Christianity thrives when it offers the world what they don't have, the Word of God and relationship with God. If we want to be relevant, and we do, 
There are 8,000 people living within Surrey Hills, 103,000 people living within two kilometres. Just keep going out and there's millions and millions of people in our city who don't know Jesus, who have no assurance that when they die they'll be accepted by God. They're in their sins, facing judgment. And we want them to know God, to, to be forgiven, to have hope that there's more beyond this life. And if we want that, then we must let the Word of God confront, disturb, undermine the complacency of the people in our city and undermine our own complacency. It's not our job to make Jesus relevant. He's never stopped being relevant. All of us are going to die. What is our solution to that problem? It's the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one in the history of the world who's proved any power over the grave. He is relevant, eternally relevant. He's never stopped being relevant. Our job isn't to make Jesus relevant as though he was, and our job is to show gently, humbly, patiently, to show the world why he is relevant. And that is what Jesus commissions his disciples to do in John chapter 17. For those of you who have been with us the last couple of weeks, we've been spending uh, the last couple of weeks with Jesus on his last night with his friends. In 24 hours, he's going to be handed over to the religious rulers who will arrest him, beat him, scourge him, mock him, sentence him, and crucify him. And as a result, his, his, his vision is focused. What really, really matters in life? And he sits down with his disciples and he tells them what matters. He tells them that he's going to the cross to make it possible for there to be room at God's side for you and I. Whatever we've done, that can be washed away. And there's a place in heaven for us if we'd come to Jesus. That's why he goes to the cross. And then he tells us that he's going, not going to leave us alone when he goes back to heaven, but he's going to send the gift of the Holy Spirit who will comfort us, who will teach us, who will guide us into the truth. And right at the end here, he prays for those before him, and he even prays for us. If you notice there, verses 6 to 19, he prays for his apostles. And then verse 20 to 26, he prays for all who would later believe in him, which is us, if you believe in him. And so what I want to do with you uh, for the rest of our time is just to look at the three things which Jesus prays for the apostles and us all. What is it that Jesus is concerned about? You sit down and you listen to someone pray. You hear what really they're worried about, what they're concerned about. If you, My guess is the last thing you prayed is what you're really worried about. What was Jesus worried about the night before he would be strung up on a cross? He wasn't concerned about himself. He prays for his friends. What is it that he asked God for them. We'll look down three things. He prays for their protection, their sanctification, and their unity. First of all, their protection. Uh, verses 11 to 12, and then 14 and 15. The reason the disciples needed to be protected is because they faced two formidable foes. 
First, the first formidable foe, right? Too many Fs in this sentence uh, for me. But the first formidable foe Jesus concerned about is in verse 14. So look down in your outline or if you have a Bible there. Jesus says this, Father, I have given them, my, my disciples, I have given them your word and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. Here is the first formidable foe. Let's remember what happened to the disciples after Jesus died and rose and ascended into heaven. These 11, uh, these 11 men went out preaching and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. And 11 out of 12 of them, no, actually 10 out of 11 of them, because one of them's gone off, Judas has gone off, 10 out of 11 of them face brutal deaths for speaking the truth about Jesus to the world. The world really did hate them. The world killed them. The world put them to death. Now, we don't face a world that is as hostile, at least in Sydney, we don't face a world that's as hostile as that. There are parts of the world right now where the same thing is happening to Christians. But our part of the world... It is opposed to Christianity and it places enormous pressure on us to conform to its ways. And it does that through, mainly a lot of the time through its media, television, radio, audio, video, newspapers, movies, theatre. The world tries to conform us to its standards and its value systems, which it communicates in a thousand different ways. But God, he places his, he, he wants us to be conformed to his word. And he reveals to us in his word how he wants us to live and what his will for us is. The world says, get and grab what you can and go and live for yourself. God says, no, 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 it's more blessed to give than to receive. The world says, give as good as you can get. Someone hits you on the right cheek, hit them back on their other cheek. God says, no, don't repay evil for evil, but repay evil with good. The world says sex is for self-expression. It's enjoyment without commitment. But God says, no, sex is for self-giving love. It's enjoyment in the context of the safety of commitment. The world says, go for the top, and the end justifies the means. But God says, no, whoever wants to be first among you must be a servant. The world says, don't let anyone tell you how to be you. You've got to be true to yourself. But God says, no, listen to my word, be true to my son, and you'll discover who you truly are. In a thousand different ways, the world tries to fit it fit us into its mold. It is opposed to us and it is opposed to God. I could go on and list a thousand one different ways. The world is our enemy. It is trying to get us to conform to its way of life rather than to follow Jesus' way of life. It is our first enemy. But the second enemy that Jesus speaks about, the second foe, is look down in verse 15. He mentions it there. It's the devil. He prays, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. So here are the two enemies Jesus prays God would protect us from. The enemy of the world 
and the enemy which is the evil one. Christianity isn't a playground. It's a battleground. The evil one is a way of referring to Satan and the devil. And you know that I've, I've, you know, you know there, are two, there are two dangers that we can have when we're talking about the devil. One is superstition and the other is substition. And we all know superstitious people in our world who are terrified of ghosts and Ouija boards and things like that, who go to church, they go to religious places because they are terrified of the evil forces that exist in the world. And they know nothing of the comfort of the power of Jesus' name, which is able to send darkness to flee. And so they're superstitious. They have this overbelief in the power of evil spirits. But the other danger is substition. If superstition's overbelief, substition is underbelief, and that really is where most of our city is at right now, isn't it? It's it's they, they don't actually think they're ignorant that there is a spiritual war going on for their own souls. They're ignorant to the fact that there is a Satan and that he is unimaginably mean. And you know what? In our city, it's very unfashionable to believe and to speak of a personal devil and demons, but we will do so. Why? Because Jesus, he teaches us plainly about it, to warn us, to prepare us, so that we won't be naive. And the picture he paints of Satan is this being of unimaginable meanness, malice, fury, fury, and cruelty directed at God, God's truth, and God's people. But while Jesus paints this picture of this incredibly mean and hostile demonic force at work in the world, he nowhere makes out that he is a rival power to God. Satan has no power apart from which that God has granted him. He is completely subservient to God. God could end his life, bind him in an instant, which is why Jesus prays to the Father. He says, Father, protect them from the evil one. Look down at verse 11. He says, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. Now, in our world, a name, a name doesn't mean much. Um, we, we kind of just find cute names for our kids. We don't really consider the meaning. But in the Bible, the name represents the nature of, of a person. The name of Jesus, which protects us from the power of the evil one, is the nature of his character. In other words, he's saying, I, I kept them safe. And now, Father, I'm going, you keep them safe by the power of your name. What is his name? What is Jesus' name? His nature is filled, is powerful. He's thoroughly good, opposed to evil, able to keep his people safe. That's what he's saying. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, when my daughter Maisie was in year one at school, she came home and she's incredibly naive. She came home and she said to Liz, she said, Mom, 
Uh, some kids at my school say swear words. And Liz replied, oh, yeah, what kind of swear words do they say? And Maisie said, they say the F word. They say the F word. Uh, they say a letter and then a word. And she goes, I don't like it. And then she goes, Mom, if there's an M word, I hope it's not Maisie. <laughs> so cute, right? Now, it's interesting. We find that cute and kind of funny. But she actually understands what a name is. A name communicates something of the nature of the person. That's why we do still talk about you can have a bad name, not as though your parents gave you a bad name, though that is possible, but that your name can be tarnished. What happens when your name's tarnished? Your, repu- your very self is tarnished. You're shown to be an unreliable person. And Jesus says, I've kept them safe. By the power of my name, my nature, who I am, I've kept them safe. And now, Father, you protect them from the world and the evil one by your power, goodness, and might. It's an incredible prayer because, you know, if Jesus is praying this, you can be sure that God's answered this prayer. And what that means is that if you are in Christ trusting him, then all the powers of Satan... All these evil ones cannot lay a hand on you apart from his permission. You are absolutely safe, secure, if you've come to trust in Jesus. So here is Jesus. He's about to leave the world. He's got 11 apostles. And he prays, Father, protect them. Protect them from the evil one. Protect them from capitulating and compromising with the world, wandering off and stopping to trust me, protect them from worldliness and protect them from the evil one. Now, I wonder if you've noticed there what he hasn't prayed for. Uh, Not rhetorical. What hasn't he prayed for, which maybe you're expecting him to pray for there? An easy life. Thanks. I think that was Alex, was it? Thanks, Alex. He hasn't prayed that God would give them an easy life. He hasn't, he hasn't even prayed that they would be spared crucifixion. Eleven, uh, ten of these eleven are going to face incredibly brutal deaths. Simon Peter is going to be crucified upside down, nails driven through his hands and feet. And Jesus doesn't pray, Father, protect them from that. He says, Father, there's something way more dangerous It's that they would become worldly and stop being faithful to me. It's that the evil one would come in and distract them from the truth I've passed on to them. He's not primarily interested in their comfort, their happiness, their temporary happiness. He's interested in their eternal security and happiness. And therefore he prays, protect them from worldliness and the devil. I wonder if that's what you pray for yourself for your loved ones, and for our church. We spend out to, I spend my time praying about my health, my decisions, my kids, my finances, whether I'll ever buy a house in Sydney. That's been a major prayer point for the last four years of my life. And, you know, God invites us to pray for those things. He's a father. He says, you can talk to me about anything. A, car, a parking spot when you're in the middle of traffic and you can't, you can pray for that. He invites you to pray for that. But if that's the only things we're praying for, how superficial, 
how blind we are to the reality of the world that we live in. There is an enemy. He is bent on ruining you eternally. He wants you to give up following Jesus, trusting Jesus. Are you praying, Father, deliver me from evil? That's what Jesus taught us to pray. Do you remember? Forgive us our sins. Give us our daily bread and deliver us from the evil one. That's what he's taught us to pray. It's very important that we pray this, that God would deliver us from the evil one, that we wouldn't be distracted, wouldn't be tempted, that we wouldn't grow cold, but that we'd stand true to Jesus, keep trusting in him, so that when we die, we would enter glory and he would receive us. Okay, that's the first thing Jesus prays. He says, Father, protect them. Secondly, Jesus prays that they would be sanctified. Look down at verse 17. Jesus prays, Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I've sent you into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Okay, now here we go. Jesus prays, Father, sanctify them. Uh, this word sanctify, it's a, it's, uh, it's a word we use in everyday conversation, isn't it? Right? We, we use this word. We throw this word around all the time. Not, right? You meant to say no. What are you talking about? Okay. Uh, we don't. And if you think of a sanctified person, what are you thinking about? I'm thinking about a grim, stern, narrow, serious person. But Jesus prays, Father, sanctify my people. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be sanctified? Sancti to sanctify simply means to make something holy, and something that's holy is focused on one thing. It's wholly focused on one thing. And we're all familiar with this. Imagine, just for an example, an athlete who says, I'm going to train for the Olympics. I want to get into the Olympics in three years' time. What is she going to do if that's her goal, her purpose? She's going to sanctify herself. She's going to set her life apart for a purpose, and she's going to pursue that purpose above all else. Now, that doesn't mean she doesn't do a thousand and one other things. She has a boyfriend. She goes to dinner. She goes to the movies. She goes on holidays. But the one driving passion of her life is the Olympics. And that shapes everything. It shapes her diet. shapes what time she wakes up in the morning. It shapes when she goes on holidays, how she rests, what job she works at, if she, is and if she, is and has, if she even has a job. Her whole life is spent toward one purpose. That's what it means to set yourself apart for something, to sanctify yourself. Every single fiber of her, every piece of her, every inch of her is pointed like a laser beam at a particular purpose. That's what Jesus is praying for his disciples. Not that they would be sanctified for a race, not that they'd be sanctified. You know, we know you've had this experience. Uh, you've, you've set your life apart for an exam. Uh, you've worked really hard for an exam. Everything else 
has been of lesser importance for an ex- I, I assume you have. Some of you maybe not. Uh, you've, you've done that for a race. I did that for six foot track a month ago. I was getting up at 5 a.m. in the morning. Why on earth would you do that? It changed my diet, my drinking. I didn't drink alcohol from, uh, from January all the way through into mid-March. It changed everything. Why? Because I'd sanctified myself for a purpose to compete in that race. And Jesus prays that his disciples would be sanctified, not for a race, not for an exam, not for a project, but for a mission. Look down at verse 17. Jesus says, Sanctify them, Father, by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. Jesus is sending his disciples out to proclaim the message that sins can be forgiven, that death has been conquered, and that there is life and peace and forgiveness and freedom in Jesus. That's their mission, to go out. It's a great and glorious mission. And so he prays, Father, sanctify them for this task. Make them wholly devoted to it. Give them a laser-like vision. Make them dedicated to this above all things. And then Jesus brings himself in. Do you notice verse 18? He says, Father, as you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. In other words, Jesus is saying, I had a mission. I have a mission. I've been sent by the Father and I've sanctified myself. I have a laser-like vision. I have a purpose. I have a goal I have a job to do, and it's the last night that I am on earth, alive. And here I am. What is my whole life about? Boil my whole life down, my whole life down. What is my life about? He says, I've been sent for this purpose. I've sanctified myself. I've set myself apart. I'm wholly devoted to this one thing. What was that one thing? We'll come down to verse 2. He says. For you granted me authority over all people that I might give eternal life to all those you have given me. That's his one chief purpose in life, to give people eternal life by going to the cross. That's where his whole life is going. And Jesus is saying, I've got this mission. That's my great goal. I set myself apart for you, for me, for the world that the world would receive eternal life. He has this laser-like vision. His, his eyes are set upon it. His whole life is driven by this desire to die for the sins of the world, to offer eternal life to the world. And Jesus says, if I've done that for you, then you're going to go out, aren't you? And you're going to share that with others. You've received eternal life. Pass on eternal life. He says, if I've done that, I want your life to be set apart for this purpose, wholly devoted to giving others eternal life. Sanctified, protected from the evil one, sanctified, set apart to make eternal life known in our world. And then thirdly, the third thing Jesus prays for is that his disciples would be unified, that there'd be unity between them. And at this point, he brings us in. Look down at verse 20. He says, he says, he prays. He doesn't just say he prays. My prayer, Father, 
is not for my disciples alone, the 11 guys in the room right now. He says, no, 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 I pray also for those who believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe you've sent me. I've given them the glory you gave me that they may be one as we are one, I and them, you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me, that you've loved them even as you've loved me. There's us. That's you in the story. If you've come to believe in the Lord Jesus through the apostles' message, that your only access to Jesus is through the eyewitnesses who stood there watching Jesus be crucified and risen. We only know about Jesus because of their eyewitness testimony, which they bled and died to give us. We believe because of their message. And Jesus' goal is that we would be one, one with the Father and one with one another. The great goal is that we would be unified, I and them, you and me, so that we'd be brought to complete unity. Our world is a terribly divided place. But in the church, Jesus wants this place to be a place of tremendous unity, where the people of all ages, all cultures, all educations, all ethnicities, all languages that we'd come and that we'd really behave like siblings, right? That kind of sounds bad because my siblings, my kids are kind of always fighting with one another. But I think the thing about siblings is they fight, but they stick with each other, don't they? It's messy, but they don't leave one another. And I'm sad for you if you have experienced a sibling that has left you, but that's God's goal for us. Now, I've kind of hinted at this already. This doesn't just mean we'd be happy and that we'd get along together. I like the fact, you know, this is a really happy church. It's a great place to be. I think we're a happy church, aren't we? Yes, okay, Carmen, I've just got to look at you for the rest of the sermon. Everyone else is not participating much, but Carmen, you're nodding. Yes, we're a happy place. It's a great place to be. Uh, but that's, that's not entirely what Jesus is praying for here. He's not praying that we would be just arm in arm, dancing, happy, singing. Though I'm happy if we dance and sing and do whatever. That's a lot of fun. Let's do it, okay? But um, he's praying that we'd have the oneness of the Father and the Son. And that means we would have the oneness of purpose, that we'd think the same, that we'd want the same, that we would do the same, that we would love the world the same way the Father and the Son do, that we'd communicate the same message that the Father and Son communicate to our world. That's why we need to learn from this prayer. Because unity, our unity, is grounded in, uh, in truth. You know, what is the first condition of being a real member of God's family? Well, you've got to believe the message of Jesus. You don't just turn up to a building and drink the same tea, eat the same food, go to the same pubs. That doesn't make you a member. What makes you a member of Christ's family is that you put your trust in Jesus, that you turn from your way of life, you turn to Jesus, 
and you join him and, and therefore you become a member of God's family. You believe the message about Jesus and you put your trust in him. That's Christian unity is always grounded in the truth. It's the gospel which grips our minds and grips our hearts. It's the truth about Jesus, his love and mercy and power. That's what grips us. You know, there's nothing like an agreed set of minds, an agreed set of hearts to unite a group of people. You know, that's why when you just attempt to get structural unity, organizational unity, dictatorship unity, there's never unity in a dictatorship. Why is that? Because a dictatorship never has the ability to unite the minds and the hearts of the people. It's a forced unity. But Jesus is talking about the unity of people who have started following Jesus, who trust Jesus, who love Jesus. And what happens when you get that, the same mind and the same heart, is you get a profound sense of unity in the church. That's what you experience, isn't it? You ever been traveling around the world and you meet a Christian and there's instant chemistry? Why is that? Because you have the same mind, the same heart. Jesus prays that they would be brought to complete unity by staying in the truth of Jesus. There is no unity when there are just lies and what people want to believe about God rather than what God has revealed about himself. Let me, let me wrap up and then I'm going to tell you a story. Jesus prays three things. What is he concerned about? This is the night of his death. His vision is so sharp at this point. If you've ever met someone dying, they don't talk about trivial things. They only talk about what matters. What matters to Jesus at this point? What matters is that his people would be protected from worldliness and the evil one because we don't live in a playground. We live on a battlefield and Satan is bent on getting you to leave the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says to the Father, Father, protect them. Keep them from growing cold, from, from wandering away from me. And then he prays, Father, sanctify them. Set them apart, wholly devoted, laser vision. For what I'm on about, I've sanctified myself, he says, for the salvation of the world, to give them eternal life. May they be driven by the same thing. Go out boldly telling the world at great cost to themselves about the Lord Jesus. And finally says, in all of that, as they go out, protected, safe, secure, as they go out, may there be tremendous unity. Keep them from fighting against one another because if they're fighting against each other, that will be a terrible witness to the world. Father, I pray that they would be kept one as you and I are one, that they would have the same mind, the same heart, the same love, the same will. Unity, sanctification, and protection. They're the three things Jesus prays on this last night. That's what we need for our church. Let me wrap up with a little story. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, many years ago, I heard Max Licardo, um give this story in one of his books and uh, he tells a story about this little town uh, uh, little town and uh, over the night tremendous rain came down and, and washed away a bridge which was over a river it was very very dangerous cars would drive 
thinking the bridge was there, drive up and over into the raging torrent of the river. And he's like, I've got to do something. The mayor says, got to do something. So he calls in three of his trusted uh, servants. And they come in and the, and the mayor gives them these sandwich board signs and they put them over their heads. And he says, you've got to go down to the river and warn people that the bridge is out. And so they all go down there, these three guys. The first guy on his sandwich side, it says bridge out. And then the second guy on his sandwich side, it says reduce speed. And then on the third guy's sandwich, sandwich sign, it says right road only. And the first guy, he says, you know what? Mine says bridge out. Why don't I go up 300 meters up the road? And he goes up there. Second guy says, you know what? Mine says reduce speed. I guess I'm next. I'll go 200 meters up the road. The third guy is kind of left there by the side of the road, which detours them off the road, which would lead over and into the waters. He's like, okay, I'm here. Right road only. Take the right road. Which way's right? That way's right. Okay. <laughs> And uh, so they're standing there for hours and hours. These three guys, they're standing there and hundreds of cars are saved. And then a couple of hours later, the first guy, he grows lazy. And he's like, you know what? I'm just going to take my sandwich board sign off, going to put it up against the tree and I'm going to have a little sleep. And as he's sleeping, his arm falls across the sign so that uh, out is covered, uh, is covered up. So the sign only says bridge. And cars just drive past. Second guy, he doesn't grow lazy. He grows conceited. And people stop and were thanking this guy by the side of the road and saying, if it wasn't for you, we'd be dead. This is incredible. Thanks so much. And this guy was so puffed up with pride. He thought he was the one that was saving people. So he takes off the sandwich side, puts it aside, stands in front of it, and is kind of waving at people. But as he's standing there, the message is obscured. And all it says now, it doesn't say reduce speed, it just says reduce. And as he's kind of dancing there and cars drive past, people just think he's advertising some weight loss program, right? Kind of reduce. Anyway, then there's a the third guy and he's down the road and he doesn't grow lazy. He doesn't grow conceited. But he looks at his side, it says right road only. And he's like, that sounds a little bit narrow, doesn't it? Sounds a little bit intolerant. What are people going to think? They're going to think that, you know, I'm telling them that they're on the wrong road. I couldn't possibly tell them that. I'm going to have to change this. So he changes right road only. He says, no, no, right road suggested. And he's like, no, I can't say that either. That might imply to them that I might know something better than they know. So he scribbles it out and then he finally writes it, stands back and goes, okay, perfect. Right road, one of two equally valid alternatives. So as the first guy sleeps, the second guy grows conceited, and the third guy changes the message, car after car after car drives off and into the raging floodwaters. That must never be this church, Marcinet. Are you lazy? Have you forgotten the joy you had in your heart when you first heard about eternal life that was possible in Jesus? Do something about it. Share it with someone this week. Invite them along to Good Friday services or an Easter Sunday. Andy is looking for wherever you are, Andy. We're in desperate need for some people to come and help out and feed people living rough on next Sunday morning, Easter Sunday, because we don't have enough volunteers. Come along. Give some cheer to these guys and girls who are doing it tough. 
We're wanting to start a youth group Sunday mornings uh, during 10 a.m. church. I'm going to keep bringing this up. We'd love to start. There are kids there wanting to learn. We don't have enough leaders. I don't know what it is for you. You might just have money. You may have tons of money. You may be rich. Our church can do with more money, so you could give generously. But don't grow lazy. Secondly, don't grow conceited. Don't think you're the one that saves people. God's the one who's going to save our city. So pray. Don't just work. Pray. And then thirdly, it's terribly tempting, isn't it, in our city to change our message. There are bits and pieces of the Christian faith which we find it just jars with what the rest of society is changed. Don't be ashamed. Jesus is true. He knows what's best for us. He is the only path through death. There is no other salvation in no other name because no one else can bring us through death. So don't change the message. Go out bold, courageous, because eternal life is at stake. He will keep you safe. He will protect you. He has sanctified you. He's given you a task. Take it seriously. And in the doing so, we will be incredibly united, won't we? Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for the gospel, the news that Jesus lived, died, and rose again for us. We thank you that our sins have been forgiven, that we're destined for glory, that one day we will see you and you will receive us because our sins have been washed away. Father, we, we have such a great message to bring to our city. Keep us from being lazy, conceited, or ashamed. Protect us from the evil one. Unite us. Give us such a sense of family that the world would look in on this and say, wow, God really is amongst us. And Father, give us a single eye, a common purpose, a vision, the same love, the same mind, the same heart, so that we would seek our city and offer them the life Jesus has promised. We pray in his name. Amen.